Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today, uh, after a long hiatus, sorry, listeners, uh, we are thrilled to be joined by Catherine Beerbel Singh. Uh, Catherine is probably known to other uh, to you through other uh, podcasts and things. She has uh, made quite a splash both in Britain and here. Um, she is the founder and head teacher of the Michaela Community School, a free school established in Wembley Park, London in 2014. Um, and we are thrilled that she is joining us today. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So we wanted to start today actually with uh, some kind of really exciting and groundbreaking news uh, out of England. Um, it was recently announced this week that the Department of Education uh, will be backing head teachers who are banning mobile phone use in schools over there throughout the day including at break times. So those of us who are here in the U.S. and who are struggling uh, with kids' cell phone use in schools um, are very excited about this news and hoping that we might be able to take a cue from you. Um, but we just wanted to start by asking you a little bit about the, the, uh, the proposed ban and your approach to devices in your school. Yeah, well, I'm really excited because I've been campaigning for years for that. And some years ago, they banned phones in the classrooms in France. And so I've been campaigning here to get the same thing to happen. And quite frankly, I'm amazed that anyone's taken any notice of those of us who have been asking for this. We, of course, at our school ban phones. Uh, well, I say ban them. We say if we hear it or we see it, we take it. So in fact, it's very possible that various kids have phones in school today. But if we don't know about it, we don't care. And um, the reason we say that is because, look, there are some schools that have plastic pockets. And when the kids arrive in the morning, they put them in the pockets and then they've given them in at the office and that kind of thing. The problem is that takes up a huge amount of time, lots of staff energy. If the school is to lose a phone, you then have to replace the phone. Much easier just to not have to deal with it. But of course, you have to be really on it when it comes to confiscation. So the other thing is, is that if we confiscate a phone, we will keep it for anywhere from six to say about 12 weeks. But I mean, for instance, if we were to confiscate on the 15th of July, they wouldn't get it back till the end of October. It all depends on our holidays and things. Um, I warn all the parents when they start that that's the case. I also say to them, look, when I'm telling you this, you all think, oh, that's all right. My child just won't take out his phone. And I say, but what happens is little Johnny, he's uh, outside the gate waiting for his mom. Mom doesn't come. So he rightly takes out his phone. He's outside of school. He rings his mom. Mom doesn't answer. And then gets a bit bored and he thinks I'll go back into school. So he comes back into school, but whoops, he's forgotten to turn his phone off. Phone rings. We confiscate. Mom then comes in and says, no, 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 no. But it was me who was ringing his phone. And we say, yes, we know. <laughs> it went off. That's why we confiscated it. <laughs> and, and then I say to them, and you can tell me this is the only phone that you own, that your mother is dying, that the only way you can keep in touch with her is through this phone. The answer will be no, right? So I make it very, very clear. And so it means we never see phones. But what does happen, like when I say we never see phones, literally, like in five years, I haven't seen a phone. But what does happen is that every now and again, a kid might forget to turn their phone off and then a beep goes in the classroom. And then we have a system where, because we communicate via WhatsApp, all the teachers. And so if 
a beep were to go off in a, in a classroom, the teacher writes, first of all, the teacher says, all hands on dice. <laughs> and the kids have to put their hands down because they're not allowed to then try and hide the phone. So the hands are all on desk and the teacher's watching them. <laughs> and then they write phone on the WhatsApp. And then an army of 10 or 12 teachers will show up at the room immediately. And then they start searching all blazers and all bags until they find the phone. So it's like we found illegal contraband, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which it is. It is illegal contraband, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, it's quite funny. <laughs> like you see it and you can hear the marching. All the teachers run to go and, and support their colleague, you know? Yeah. So it means this never happens, you know? And, uh, and we also have a very strong policy around not just not having phones in schools, but trying to encourage families not to get, give their children smartphones at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our younger ones, uh, you know, the grade seven, grade eight, uh, I would say half the, half the year group don't have phones at all. And we, we sell brick phones at the school. Uh, we actually sell them at a loss. And I explain this to parents that I buy them for 18 pounds. I sell them at 14 pounds. Uh, knowing that I'm going to lose, but knowing that their children's lives will be better off <laughs> for having, a, you know, a brick phone instead of a smartphone. And I tell them about the terrible tragedies of kids who have been murdered because of uh, being online unsupervised. Uh, I tell them about the studies that are done on children's brains essentially being broken and them not performing as well in their exams. And we actually see it really well here because we are so good at being on top of the technology. We have four sets, top set, second set, third set, fourth set in every year, according to ability and attainment. And I can tell you right now, in every single year, the kids in the bottom set, they all have phones. Kids in the top set mainly don't have phones. Like it's fascinating. And the wow. kids who end up going down sets and the kids who end up going up sets, the ones who go up, are always without phones. The ones who come down are always the ones with phones. So wow. we, and anecdotally, you know, for people who listen to this, you know, who are parents, I can't stress enough how I see it myself. There are the studies, Jonathan Haidt talks about it, the mental health that's affected, their brains are affected, the homework is affected. I, I can just tell you anecdotally that I see it right in front of me all the time that is clear the smartphones ruin children's lives. And so yeah. how is it that you get such uh, consistency amongst your team to know, know that? Because the, the the pressure, the peer pressure yeah. to have phones, to allow its usage, how do you make that happen in school? Look, I mean, you have to, one, I'm telling all the families before they join. And then when the kids arrive, they're all told that, you know, immediately on the first day and they know it. And then we just, you just have to hit them. You know, when I say hit them, I don't mean hit them. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean adding to your reputation. <laughs> I mean, hit them with the message. You know, you got to be just boom, boom, boom all the time. Now, obviously, we started this way. So it's always been this way. But for instance, you know, I should show you, I can even play right now. I get parents to do little interviews with me and kids to explain why it's better. So here, I'm just telling me. And I decided to grab you and ask you some questions about year seven and phones and so on. Tell me what you were just saying. 
so I was, I was just explaining about Amon that when we came into year seven, we ha he had a phone. Um, he got a phone straight away and was quite excited by it. Um, came into one of your first meetings about the parenting and he said, no phones, no phones. And I thought, oh God, it's a bit of a strict school. It's not going to really work out. But then we took it off him um, and thought, we'll give it on the weekend or something. But the more, the longer we kind of persuaded him to take it off, the longer we had it off him, we realized exactly what you were saying. And now that he's left GCSEs and he's done his GCSEs and got the top grade, got nines, four nines and three fours, it's made me realize exactly what you were saying. I think, come on, I think you need to just... Five nines and three. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we were chuffed. We were chuffed. So he's in, in uh, year 12, grade 12. Now we, have, we go to grade 13. So he's done his GCSEs, which is the national benchmark here of exams in grade 11. He's done really well. He's got eights and nines. He's got the top grades. Uh, and now he's come into our sixth form. And so he and his mom have come along for this open evening and I've spoken to them. And then she and I was telling them all, because this is all I ever say is, I know your kids are 17 now, but don't give them a phone <laughs> when I'm going on and on about phones once again. So she came down after me in the corridor and she said, Oh, you know, so interesting what you said about phones. When he started in grade seven, I thought, oh my goodness, this is crazy. And I said, oh, come into my office, sit down. And I brought the boy too. I said, absolutely, I'm going to record you right now. And the two of them were kind of sorting their hair out. And I was saying, yeah, don't worry about your hair. <laughs> and so, and then I just put my phone on and I started recording them and asked them some questions. So I'll be using that now, that video that I took last week. We have got in a couple of weeks, the grade seven parents are coming in. And so I'm then gonna play them that. And of course she's talking about when her child was in grade seven. And so I'm able to say, look, he's now got the grades. He's got into our sixth form. If you want your child to be a success in this way, you need to do the same thing and get rid of the smartphone, for instance. Yeah, well, it's clear that the great. consequences are quite different. I mean, uh, you know, at, at my kid's school, you know, they they take the phone if they catch you with it, but uh, they give it back to you at the end of the day. So well, it's not quite <laughs> as severe as losing it for three months. Exactly. Exactly. So like, they don't care. Like, okay, so what? You take it. You have to be consistent with, the, with, with it. So all the teachers need to do the same thing. And you'll notice it, we're not just leaving it up to one teacher, 10 or 12 zoom in. So you, you got the power there because otherwise, as you said, the teenagers, you know, they go on hunger strike. When you take their phone, they move out of the house. They do all sorts of crazy things. And this is what I say to the parents. I say, get ready for them to go on hunger strike, but you tell them when you go home tonight, there's a new sheriff in town. And then what always happens is the parents come up to me afterwards going, you're right. This people saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Going home, going to take the phone. You know? So you, you just got to keep doing it. And that's why this woman, every year when they come for a parent's evening, they just hear me going on and on and on about phones. But the thing is, I keep recording families, showing this, trying to persuade them. And then they see the good themselves. And then they do it because they realize, well, they want what's best for the kids, don't they? Right. Yeah. Well, full disclosure, uh, Catherine is working with with me and our team at Vertex Partnership Academies, our high school in the Bronx. And last year, we had sort of a trust policy with phones where we trusted kids to not use them and bad move. This year, we are collecting phones and uh, smartwatches and uh, Apple, um, the AirPods, all devices. They put them in a pouch. It's locked up. And then it's by the school and not unlocked not unlocked until the end of the day. Um, and what's interesting, Catherine, is that 
there was initial some grousing from the kids, but now it's such an oasis. And what I realized, the kids, it was the peer pressure. It was the idea that everyone else was using their phone and that's why they wanted it. But now that no one else, no one else has it, it's, it, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Exactly. And it becomes normal. And then they get used to their brains being able to think. You know, the thing is, is that even with our kids here who are not on their phones all day, um, I've just had some screenshots from one of my, so these are my grade 11s. So, you know, they're older and um, their head of year just sent me uh, some photo, some screenshots of their phone. So he's looked at their screen time. And some of them are doing six hours, seven hours, even eight hours a night. So they're leaving school and then they're just on their phones. <laughs> like part, like constantly. It's really disturbing. So imagine if you have your kid and they're on their phones all day as well while they're at school. Yeah. They're on there 16 hours a day. I mean, what what kind of life is that, you know? And then people say, oh, but you know, you need to let kids be kids. Well, I can tell you what stops kids from being kids, the phone. Because at break time, instead of them playing with each other, chatting to each other and being normal, they're just staring at a screen and they're not even interacting with each other. And then they're, they are exposed to um, any undesirable and predator out there who knows where your child lives, knows their friends, knows what they like to do. They can groom them. It's shocking. They, they have access to porn. Find me the 14-year-old boy who has unsupervised access to the Internet, who hasn't watched porn. You know, I'd like to see him because I don't think he exists, right? Like, time, we used to put the magazines behind, you know, up on in the in the shops. We would hide them behind some kind of wooden thing contraption. Now, not only are they not magazines, they're like full proper videos. Like, I mean, it's just grotesque. And the thing is, parents don't know; they don't realize. And what we must all admit is that phones are great babysitters, and which is why people use them. It is so easy to hand your kid a phone and then you don't have to worry about them and you can get on and cook the dinner. You can do a bit of work. You can do whatever you need to do. And your kid just sits there in silence because they're on their phone. Much harder to shout at them to get on their violin or to you know help them with their homework because then that requires a lot of input from the parent. So if we were all honest with each other, we would all recognize, look, it is easier. That's why we do it. But the the consequences of children on phones is just... It, it, it's just appalling, honestly. But I do sometimes feel like I'm shouting into the wind because uh, <laughs> nobody wants to hear it because the benefit from, from from the adult's point of view in that moment is is not great. Like, So there's lots of teachers who quite like children to be on phones. And the reason for that is that it makes it easier for them in the classroom. It means they don't get any disruptions because the kids are just quietly on their phones and that's okay. And the kids who really want to listen, listen. And the kids who don't want to listen are just on their phones. So it makes behavior management a lot easier. But my position is that obviously we're not meant to be teaching just the kids who are going to go against the grain. You need to teach right. all the kids in the classroom. Yeah. So um, so Ian visited you uh, a few weeks ago. And um, I sort of wanted to talk about kind of some of, the, some of the things that he saw, but also ask you, I mean, obviously you've been shouting about the phones. I mean, you've been shouting about a lot of other things too. Yes, and yes. I kind of wanted to get a sense of whether you feel like, uh, you know, any of the atmosphere is changing as a result of the example that you've set. But maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll sort of ask Ian if like he could sort of um, talk about some of the highlights and then we could sort of, um, you know, go back to the question of uh, of how replicable they are and whether people are starting to try to replicate them. Yeah. 
hold the line, hold the line. That is when I think of when I think of visiting uh, Mikhail. It's unlike any school I've ever seen. The level of academic rigor, expectations. I mean, you just heard a snippet of it as it relates to phones, but it's it's every aspect of the school because the the whole school is organized around this inculcating this idea of personal responsibility and agency in kids like they they are there is a sense of growing self discipline and that doesn't happen unless there's complete almost maniacal commitment from all the teachers and um and all the faculty all of the adults and so the thing that I, you know, I would love for Catherine to talk about is that you know, I asked it about the cell phones, is how do you get this level of organization-wide uh, commitment, first from the adults, because we can talk about the kids and, and the amazing things that they're doing, the poetry that they're reciting, the, just the, the level of order, the level of engagement. It, it's almost like the student engagement and discipline it's a byproduct of a relentless effort to make sure that the adults are all in sync. Catherine, what would you say about that? Yeah, well, that's right. The adults all need to be singing from the same hymn sheet and consistency is everything. Now, people will then say, oh, you're just brainwashing the kids. The thing is, is that every institution is brainwashing the kids. It just depends Absolutely. on what you're brainwashing them with. So in other places, you might be telling the kids, you know, you're a victim. You know, the establishment is against you. You'll you'll have find it hard to ever become anything because you're black or you're poor or you're, you know, whatever it is. Now, or you can say, look, there's obstacles and you, you need to jump over them. And so uh, you need to build, build resilience. I mean, I was just sorting out my assembly for next week, which is all about resilience and how when I was setting up the school, all the obstacles that I came across and how I needed resilience in order to jump over those obstacles, et cetera, et cetera. My assembly this week has been about why we do homework. And how there's a whole bunch of people out there who, as far as I'm concerned, have lost their minds. And they think that people, kids shouldn't be set homework or that, you know, sometimes we give them too much homework and all this nonsense. And then I, you know, I showed them this BBC headline, you know, do we give too much homework? And I said, that's ridiculous. We are Michaela. We understand that the BBC are idiots. And um, and it's funny because the little <laughs> ones, like the, the bigger ones just sit there and listen to me. Whereas the little ones, when I'm going... They're a bunch of idiots. How can they not realize homework is so is is the best thing ever? And all the little ones are there nodding away, you know. <laughs> 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 and, um, but they really get it. They get why we do homework. You know, it was so funny because I tweeted about homework and said um, that uh, you know kids have six and a half hours. If you go to bed at ten o'clock, you got six and a half hours after school. Uh, so why can't people find time for an hour's worth of homework? And this caused so much outrage. Uh, that I had over 4 million views on that tweet. And I don't even know, it's probably many more now. I don't know, it, like it was crazy. And I was thinking, all I'm saying is kids should do homework. And 10 years ago, I promise you, that would not have been so controversial. But we have now moved into an era where things that we used to consider normal are not normal. And, um, yeah. you know, my kids get it here and they do more than an hour's worth of homework. And that's one of the reasons why they're really successful and our academic results at the school are really successful. So. As I say, you know, you put the work in and then you'll see the results or you can not work and then you won't see the results. Can you just talk for a moment about your structure? Because I want folks to understand the United States. You run a public school, which is a free school. And yes. so people should understand how that is comparable to a charter school here in the States. 
Yeah, so it is similar to charter school. Um, our education secretary here um, 10 years ago uh, copied um, what you all do with charter schools. So we've only just had them for the last decade or so. Um, the difference though, is that um, our intake in the various free schools here is given to us by the local council in the way that you know the public schools would get, the other ordinary public schools would get their intake. So the difference, I suppose, between free schools here and normal public schools is that they've been set up by a bunch of people. And that does make a big difference because of course, all the teachers who teach here at Michaela are uh, committed to the vision that we've got and are self-selecting when they apply for a job here because they know what we're about and they, they, they buy into the values. You talked about agency and personal uh, you know, responsibility, the idea of resilience, building all of this into kids, that they like those the virtues that we believe in. And then we all push and talk about those virtues. So do the do the families choose the school or is are they districted somehow for the school? So all families in Britain uh, sort of choose their school. And I'm putting this in inverted commas because they're allowed to choose six schools. But obviously, if you've chosen a school, third, fourth, fifth or sixth, really, it's not really the school that you want. But everybody has to put has to apply, has to go through this system. And then the local council places people out. But because they try and be fair, uh, you know, a school will not get always their first choice kids. So we might get 20, 30 percent of our kids who have chosen us first, maybe another 20 percent choosing us second, you know, another 15 percent choosing us third and so on. So we've got a bunch of kids who really don't want to be here. Uh, But we've also got a a smaller, you know, another number who do want to be here and whose families have chosen us. Uh, But what I find is that for the kids who haven't chosen us after you know, the parents might put themselves on waiting lists for other schools and so on. And then some weeks into being here, when their parents come and say, right, well, we've got you a place in another school, let's go. The kid will always say, no, 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 actually, I want to stay here. The kids always find it very difficult at the beginning when they join us because they're, you know, we have to train them in behaving in the Makeda way. It's quite hard. The days are long. We teach them a lot. So they find it very taxing on their brains, as it were. And they also get homework, which has to be done. There's no way out of it. The thing is, is that they see the difference. They, they see how much they're learning. And I always say that children will forgive any number of det- detentions. They will forgive all of the other stuff that they don't like at school as long as they are learning. Children primarily go to school to learn, except because they're children, they will always push back because that's just in their nature. They push, we push. That's what should happen. It's just that nowadays nobody pushes. So the kids just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And they, in the end, end up leading the learning in schools. Uh, Our student voice here in Britain, I don't know what happens in America, but we actually have student councils that sit on panels and decide who should be the deputy principal. Like, seriously, (laughs) like it's crazy. I mean, it's just crazy. How does a 14-year-old know who should be deputy principal? Ian, you might get fired soon by the kids. (laughs) I know, I know. Actually, yes, yes, it's true. But that won't happen at Vertex. I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm being schooled in the Michaela way. Oh, good. That's it. You said how many people? So Ian is, is taking lots of what we do at Michaela and implementing this at Vertex. You know, I just had today uh, seven uh, teachers and a mixture of senior team people uh, from New Zealand who've come over here and they've, they've seen a few schools over here and they, they saw ours last and they're flying out tomorrow. 
And they were saying how they were taking all these ideas. They're going back to New Zealand with it. It's so exciting. I had an email today from a teacher, a deputy principal in Australia, who was explaining to me how he's implemented so much of what we do at Michaela in his school in Australia and how it's made so, such a great difference and how the new staff who have joined there are so grateful to him. And he's saying how grateful he is to us because he's learned all of that from us. So I think there's loads of people, not just in this country, but across the world who are who are implementing stuff that they find at Michaela and they come and visit us. We get 800 visitors a year and those are mainly teachers from across the world. So, you know, that's really exciting, you know, to, to you know, I get letters from people saying how um, how they really, you know, appreciate being able to come and learn from us. Are your successes in terms of getting students into university, um, are those sort of somehow trickling back to uh, to the ears of policymakers there? Um, are, are, is anyone in, in higher education there kind of speaking up on, on behalf of your model and, and perhaps uh, trying to replicate it at least there? Yeah, so, I mean, I genuinely think that, you know, we will have had a huge influence on the smartphone ban across the country. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we're not the only ones, but we will have had influence there. Um, I, I think that, yes, it depends. You see, it depends on who you're talking to. So some people, politicians are very supportive of what we do and others are not. Um, it tends to be a, a right left thing. You know, the more uh, conservative politicians, although not all of them would be more supportive of us, the more left wing politicians are not. Uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of left leaning people in education tend to be tend to have the opinion that you know uh you know we do need to be telling kids that they're victims uh that life is very hard for them and that's something that we should dwell on they tend to be of the opinion that uh we should be promoting uh, more divisive groups amongst the kids which i just don't think is right we believe very much in um believing that all the children are british you in america have more of a sense of everyone being american we have much less of that here in Britain. I think because of Britain's colonial past and past around slavery and so on, there can be great shame around being British. And so people don't want to sort of admit to being British, especially if their kids are from minority backgrounds. They would rather tell their kids that they're from Jamaica or that they're from you know, Nigeria, as opposed to saying, no, actually we're all British, whatever color we are. So we mm -hmm. sing God Save the King, and other uh, you know, national songs, which celebrate the fact that we're all British together. But that is extremely controversial here, um, like extremely. You know, the thing is, it's human nature to want to belong and to, to belong to a group. So if you don't belong to your country, then you're going to belong to your tribe. And often your tribe might be segregated according to race or religion. That's the most likely thing, or it could be sexuality. And so, I don't want, you know, my black kids in one corner of the yard and my, you know, uh, Muslim kids on the other side of the yard or whatever. I, d I just don't want that happening. Right. I want them all to be friends with each other. And of course they are. Thanks to the fact that we very much exist under this umbrella of being British and um, sharing the same sorts of values around personal responsibility, around self-sacrifice, around, uh, you know, a sense of duty towards others. If you get a detention, you're not just letting yourself down, you're letting the whole team down, you know. And, and we're just constantly talking about those values so that the kids embed those values, you know? And I don't think that these values, you know, this idea that we should just let kids do anything or be anything, 
we were talking about phones a minute ago. The fact is, there's loads of things that we don't let kids do. We don't let them smoke. We don't let them drink alcohol. We don't let them drive or have sex or get married. You know, and that's because they're too young to be able to make the right decisions around these things. I'd say the same thing for smartphones. And frankly, I'd yep. say the same thing for whether or not they can hire the deputy principal. They're too young. <laughs> right. You know, Edie, Edie Hirsch, who I know you respect his work, he wrote a book many years ago called The Making of Americans, which makes mm -hmm. the exact point that you're referring to. And I know he's been a big influence on you. So can you talk for a few moments in the, the remaining moments we have about this philosophy of the importance of knowledge uh, uh, versus skill development? Because I know that that's also something that's hugely important to your approach at McKayla. Yes. So... Look, the fact is that we all want both people who support this idea of skills or knowledge, either side, you've got the traditionalists who believe in knowledge, you've got the progressives who believe in skills, look, and skill teaching, because the traditionalists, it's not that we don't believe in skills, it's just that we believe you arrive at skills through knowledge. And it's not that the traditionalist doesn't want children to be creative or to think for themselves, we do. But you can only think independently about something if you know a lot about it. So I, for instance, I'm a real radical when it comes to education. I've done things very differently. And the reason why I can do that with education is that I know it inside out. If you asked me to make a really radical, radically different car, I wouldn't be able to do so because I can't, uh, you know, the car, I don't, what do I know about cars? You know, all I, what I know is education. So that's why I can be different with it. So in order for children to ever be able to think independently about something, they need to know lots about it. That means we teachers need to teach them and tell them stuff. We have all been taught that it's wrong to tell kids stuff. We believe a la Rousseau that it's inside the child and you must draw it out. It, children are not born with knowledge. If we don't put the knowledge in them, it, and if you're in your class asking them questions and you haven't taught them that knowledge and they answer the question, that means somebody else put the knowledge there. That's the thing you've got to remember. So it's our job as adults to give them knowledge. And then that knowledge will give them the skills that they need to have a successful life. I promise you that's what happens. We teach knowledge here. The, the people visiting today, they couldn't believe it, how independent they were, how confident they were, how articulate they were. They went on and on and on. They'd never seen children like this before. I tell you, it works, but you know, it does require all your people coming across the ocean and visiting us, and then they can come and see what, what that does. All right. Well, we'll we, we need to replicate your school here, and then people won't have to go all the way across the ocean, and we'll have to replicate I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yes, <laughs> Australia, New Zealand, too, so people won't have to travel as far. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, well, this has been a really helpful conversation, and I encourage all of our listeners to arrange a, a visit with you as well. Um, but thank you so much for sharing this theory. We're so glad that uh, you've had this influence uh, there uh, in terms of the phones, and hopefully it will spread to other aspects of education as well. Um, so with that, uh, you can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I am Ian Rowe. Catherine, thank you very much. Have to mention that you are a commander in the uh, of the Order of the British, British Empire. Empire. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I she speaks with authority. She, she is a commander that is speaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It was great. <laughs>